Chuck, are you there? Chuck? Hello? Hello. Chuck, you're there. I am. Hi, okay. For our Blog Talk listeners, um, we uh, our um, other platform, uh, CyberStation USA, is not on the air this morning. They're having some technical difficulties, and uh, since our signal is routed through them, we had to do a quick route around. But anyway, we're here. Uh, this is... Uh, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and Chuck is hosting. <laughs> Sorry about all that, Chuck. That's quite all right. Patrick, are we on uh, Blog Talk Radio then? We're, we're on Blog Talk Radio. Okay, great. So you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. This is why, Patrick, it's good to have more than one station carrying the show. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of like keeps us going no matter what. You know, It's yeah. kind of like the ever-ready battery. And yet we launch another week of live broadcasting here at Fairness Radio. Patrick, let people know how they can reach us. Uh, they can call in at 424-675-6806, or they can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. And the show must go on, Patrick. It must. We even have guests. We've got uh, John F. McManus, who is the president of the John Birch Society in our number one. I've interviewed him many times. Um, I've always liked the Birch Society in that they always stand up for the Constitution, and they kind of they've been out there for decades, you know, soldiering along. Good group, you know. They uh, I think they've had a lot of mud thrown at them over the years, um, none of which I've ever seen to be to be really true. And uh, I think in the second hour we've got uh, Dave Johnson. Yes, we do. So to be an interest as usual, an interesting Monday show. I'm going to have to call John, so we'll take a, when we get to that point um, and take a break. Uh, we'll call him through the LA uh, board. No, oh, okay. Okay. We must do things the old-fashioned way here from time to time. <laughs> yes. Patrick, yesterday was Darwin Day. I don't know if you noticed that. I did notice that. Um, however, I was uh, recovering from another 40-mile bike ride and watching wow. the uh, the Grammys, so I, I it slipped my mind. I just, I just will comment briefly because it was a pretty big deal here at Harvard, 
and uh-huh. there's been a lot of humanist clubs. It's kind of one of these sort of college things, and humanist clubs, atheist clubs around the country observe it. And uh, I'll just make the following observation, Patrick. As you know, I've, I've researched the topic, and I, you know, it's, it's not. I don't want to get into a discussion of the science of, of the theory of evolution, although you know I'm, I'm happy to do it and, and like to do it. But I want to comment just on the philosophy of, of evolution, that being something that all sides agree um, it's had an effect. Uh, you know, and uh, the uh, evolution apologists, of course, say that um, eugenics and social Darwinism are misinterpretations of evolution. I would argue that they're the practice of evolution. But putting that aside, what is agreed to is that evolution has had a philosophical impact on the world. And I, it, it kind of runs, I, I would claim, against the basic American leitmotif, which I think was best expressed in the Declaration of Independence when Thomas Jefferson stated that all men are created equal. And, of course, that came from the Bible. The book of Genesis says that God created man and women in his image. And, and from that derived this concept, something that's not provable, but something that we all accept and we all admire and we all believe. The evolutionary idea is that all people are not created equal. I mean, there's really no way other than to get around that. It believes that we're all in various states of evolution, some more evolved than others, and that uh, the more evolved or the, or the more fit, as Darwin put it, would kill off or the, the weaker members or they would die off naturally in, in order to create eventually a new and uh, more evolved or superior species. So I just want to make that observation. I think it's worth making uh, on Darwin Day, or at least the day after Darwin Day. Uh, your thoughts? Did Did you go to the event at Harvard? No. Oh, okay. Too bad. It looked like it was uh, going to be a fun event. Uh, they, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I know I know uh, Greg Epstein, who uh, is the humanist chaplain at Harvard. It's interesting he calls himself a chaplain, but they uh, he's been. I've had him on the program. We should have him. He's uh, uh-huh. we've had, they're uh, they're quite a group. I, I didn't realize there were humanist chaplains. Uh, yeah. But uh, you, you learn something every day. Well, um, that, that's interesting. It's also interesting that, that you uh, ascribed uh, all men are created equal to the Bible. Um, that's the first time I've ever heard that. But uh, I suppose if you're, if you're oriented towards the Bible and you believe it's a, uh, it's a holy book, um, you, you can say that. Um, well, now, Patrick, if I could just intervene, you could check Jefferson's commentary on how he wrote it. And that it is, it it it, it, it comes from the uh, verse one, chapter seventeen of Genesis, where God says, "All men and women are created in the image of God." And that's where the idea comes from. In, in other words, that because all men and women, and it does say women, by the way, are in the image of God, out of that derives the idea that we're all equal, that we're all born equal, at least. Is that and that that was that's that Jefferson's comment. Uh, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I learn something every day. Yep. Okay. Um, now, the, that I, I'm not sure that it logically follows that just because they're created in, in the image of God, whatever that is, um, that that makes them all equal. That that's well, not, that, that's that's the, not an, that's not a logical syllogism. No, actually, it is. I mean, that's that's uh, if if everyone is created in the image of God 
then it, it, it kind of, as Jefferson said in the Declaration, it's self-evident that all men, and when he said men, he meant men and women, are created equal. I mean, it's a, there's nothing there that says that some are more created or less created in the image of God. It says that all men and women, and it does say women specifically, in God's image are they created. Okay, well then, if, if that's the case, then why aren't they? Well, they are. We're all born equal. Oh, I mean, everyone, everyone in this country, every human being in this earth, according to religious understanding, and by the way, it's not just Judaism and Christianity. I think all religions ascribe to this, I think. I, I, I could be wrong about that. But I think that the understanding is that we are all born equal, that we're all, you know, you know th that doesn't mean that, that the results are equal. It doesn't mean that our lives are equal, but that we're born equal, that human beings are, are you know, the same when they're born. Uh, well, well, what does equal mean? It means that there is no such thing as a superior species or less or, or, or inferior species. Every human being, whether they're born rich or poor, uh, American or New Guinean, they're equal. They're born equal under God because they are in the image of God. It just it just means that it's 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 simple. It's that. Uh, there's no such thing as a superior or inferior person. We're all so, equal individuals. So when um, uh, uh, Paris Hilton was born, who was born in the same year my daughter was born, uh, she and my daughter were equal, even though she lives in a $27 million mansion, and my daughter's going to college in a dorm room in Ireland. Yes, of course they were equal. Why, do you think Paris Hilton is superior to your daughter? Uh, well, she thinks so. <laughs> well, she would be wrong, and I don't know what she thinks, but but obviously she's wrong, Patrick. In fact, I would imagine, in reality, she's probably inferior to your daughter in in, in terms of her life. But no, they were born equal, my, and and equal to my daughter too. Okay, of course. Well, well, um, so and, and then your next step is to, is to point out is to say that because um, um, evolutionary theory indicates that. Um, Various species are at different places in uh, their evolution uh, evolutionary timeline. That some are quote more superior or more evolved than others. But being evolved doesn't necessarily mean you're you're inferior or superior. Any well, Patrick, I would refer. Indicates that. I, I would refer to, and I've, and as you know, I've read the voluminous writings of Charles Darwin, particularly his second book, Descent of Man. And I congratulate you on that. Yeah, and, and he and and the the entire premise is that we're all in various stages of evolution. That's his whole research. Why some group are more evolved than others? Why some species are more evolved than others? What is it about them that makes them more evolved? That's exactly what the the science of Darwinism, Darwinism is. That all of life on Earth is in a state of flux. It is in a state of either evolving and perfecting itself or killing off or dying off for the weaker members of any given species at any time. That there is no, I mean, it's the opposite of the biblical understanding, which is that we're all the same. We're all born equal. It's, it, it's, a, it's the idea that we're all in a stage of various stages of evolution. Well, I, and, I think and, that that's also self-evident. Uh, the uh, average height of uh, human beings is now uh, taller than, than it was 100 years ago. The average intelligence of human beings is now uh, higher than it was uh, uh, several hundred years ago. Our abilities are, are different. Uh, so I think it's self-evident that, 
that there is evolution going on and that we we are not the same as people who were born 100 years ago. And uh, we've got one minute before we have to call the guest. I would argue that that is not evolution. That's just because of our our ability to understand the world and our ability to accumulate knowledge and improve our own life on Earth. We've we've become better. We've become you know we've become stronger. We live longer. We're fatter, but we're not more evolved. We're the same people that were there in the time of Christ or in the time so, of uh, whenever you know so the beginning of man. We're just taller and faster. Yeah, and we're we just uh, we, we and, and uh, all those that's things. Right. You don't include that as evolution. It, it's not. It's just we have more experience and we're, we're we, we have refrigerators now. We live longer, you know, because we've we, we've we've looked at science and we've improved our lives. It doesn't mean that we're evolved. We're the same. We're just happier and bigger and and more successful because uh, that's what uh, life's all about: trying to improve life on Earth. It doesn't make and us more evolved. And, and the changes, like the changes in our teeth um, over the past uh, 10,000 years, they, they're not evolution. They're just because we just eat differently now. And because we have we have toothpaste, we have, okay. uh, you know, we, we know how to take vitamins now. We know how to get rid of germs. Yeah, I mean, it's because we understand science. Biologically, we're no different. We're just able to, we're healthier because we we have a thing called medicine, and we've learned how to identify the good things in the universe that can help us live better. We're not okay, more involved. Well, well, we'll have to, to pick this up afterwards. Uh, we're going to have to, to take a break, and uh, I'm going to um, uh, see if we can track down our guest. Great. our blog talk listeners can still hear us. So Block Talk listeners, we don't normally do this from the Los Angeles uh, board, so it, uh, I'm having to, to reset a couple of things here. So you'll hear an answer, hopefully. again. Okay. Dialing. Call fail is not answered. All right. I'm going to have to uh, try a different tack here. Okay. 
we're having problems with our board, and I'm not again. I'm not quite sure why. So we'll give it one one last check here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, so that's not working. All right, I'm going to have to try something else. Hold on a second here. Chuck, you there? John, are you still there? I'm here. Okay. Okay, we're going to have to. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure what's happening. Um, we're this, when I when I call you through our our radio station's uh, call board, um, I get a call failed. So, uh, would you uh, hang up? We're going to try it once again. Okay. Okay. Okay, for some reason it's not working. All right, so. Hi, John. Sorry, this is Patrick O'Heffernan again. Um, we're having d- difficulties with the out- outbound lines. I'm not sure what uh, Verizon is doing to us here, but could you call into our inbound number, and I can give you that if you can, 424-675-6806. Thank you. Hi, Chuck. Uh, the outbound is not working, so can you call in to the 424 number? Thank you.
Patrick? Hi, Chuck. Is that you? Yes, and it is. Here's John. Thank you very John, much. John, is that you? John McManus here, yes. Oh, okay. Our We're guest all is, on board. Is, uh, uh, this, Chuck, take, thank take you very away. much, Patrick. I get. Our guest is Mr. John F. McManus. He is the president of the John Birch Society. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome him aboard from such an august and venerable organization. Mr. McManus, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Mr. McManus, I want to talk to you a little bit about the candidacy of Ron Paul for president, mainly because it seems to me that Ron Paul is the first candidate uh, of a major uh, party, a candidate, to speak about monetary issues and about the Federal Reserve, possibly the first going all the way back to William Jennings Bryan. Uh, what, what exactly is his message, if you could recount it, with regard to our, the means in which we um, handle our money in this country? Well, first of all, he believes that the Constitution should be uh, adhered to. And the Constitution gives Congress the power to coin money, not to issue money, and not to pass on uh, fraudulently uh, accepted uh, permission to issue money to the Federal Reserve. So you got to go right back to the Constitution. I know that that's his position. I've talked to him about it. What exactly would that look like, uh, John, with regard to how America under the constitutional system, would issue currency? Well, issue currency is, is wrong. The, the Constitution says coin money, and the intention was to have the people bring their precious metals to a mint, which the mm -hmm. government started in 1792, right after the Constitution was ratified, to have it coined into a particular size, weight, and purity that would be recognized throughout the country. It was never the position of the Constitution to have the federal government issue money. Right, so what has happened is they started issuing money, and then the Federal Reserve was created, and now they issue the money. And uh, there's no limits on how much money they issue. Uh, that's the cause for inflation, which is an increase in the quantity of currency and so forth. Now, I'm just repeating my own position, which I happen to know is the same position that Ron Paul holds. But I want no, to also I'm mention sorry, that the Birch, yeah. the Birch Society never endorses a candidate and never urges people to vote for them. If we're asked about this candidate or that candidate, we're happy to talk about what we know about them. Right, and John Birch Society, of course, is nonpartisan. Uh, John, I want to ask you a bit about how the Federal Reserve System works. It's, of course, been in place since 1913 when the Federal Reserve Act was uh, signed into law by, by President Wilson. Um, does the Fed, is the Federal Reserve a private institution or is it a public, is it a part of the government? It is not part of the government. It is a privately owned uh, organization that has vast powers over the economic life of our country. Uh, we don't even know who owns the Federal Reserve, and that's part of what Ron Paul would like to flesh out. He's now the chairman of a subcommittee in the Congress that has oversight over this. He's had hearings with them. He's gotten uh, somewhere with them as far as uh, admitting that they do this and they do that. But it's still a very much a secret operation, and I think he intends to use 
what powers he has until he retires from Congress at the end of this year uh, to get more information for the American people about the Federal Reserve. Okay, our guest is John F. McManus. He's the president of the John Birch Society. You know, it should be obvious to anyone that the power to regulate the value of currency is the power to control property. It's the power to control all of us. And that power is vested in the Federal Reserve. Why would Congress want to abrogate their responsibility of issuing, or, or I, would, I would say issuing currency, you say coin. But what, either way, why would they want to abrogate that responsibility and turn it over to this private consortium of banks? What do they get well, out of it? Well, the Federal Reserve was sold to Congress in 1913 as something other than what it was. Uh, I believe it's safe to say that the members of Congress were snookered in 1913 into doing something that would control the power held by a few very large banks. So they voted for the Federal Reserve. Uh, it was somewhat mild when it got started, but the people who were behind it said, let's get it on the books and we'll fix it later. <laughs> fix it, they right. did. And uh, indeed, the Federal Reserve actually issues currency to Congress and to our government at interest. And it's really a very strange system because it's our money. We shouldn't have our money be a debt instrument. It should be, be interest-free. Um, and they actually, the New York Federal Reserve, issues these bonds on Wall Street. Um, and and uh, the whole system is at the core of a transfer of wealth from, from working people to, to this uh, this elitist, uh, internationalist uh, banking establishment. Yeah, that's um, right. What did you say? Well put. Well put. The Federal, okay. Re me, Federal, Reserve, yep. the Federal Reserve um, can create vast amounts of currency at whim to do anything mm -hmm. that it wants to do with that currency. Right now, the Federal Reserve is in a very... Uh, uh, backhanded type of a deal to rescue the European Union and its euro currency. Uh, this is intolerable. How many American people understand this? Not very many. Ron Paul has published information about this. He wants the American people to understand what's happening. And, of course, when they create all, all kinds of new money, then the money that does exist, what's in your pocket and mine, becomes less valuable. They want to say inflation right. is rising prices, but it isn't. Inflation's an increase in the quantity of currency that causes rising prices. And that lesson and has to I be believe, learned by the American people as well. Right. And I believe that right now, as we speak, there is a representative of the Federal Reserve uh, negotiating for through the International Monetary Fund to bail out Greece. And I think it needs to be understood that if that happens and more currency is printed with the American imprimatur on it, which is our dollar, then the American working man and woman's dollar is going to decrease in value. It's kind of a backdoor tax, really. Absolutely. It's a backdoor tax. Right. But, you know, a lot of the money that they use today isn't even printed. It's simply a computer transfer. It's a push of right. a few buttons on a, on a very fancy Federal Reserve computer. Let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Thank you, Chuck. And, and, John, thank you for being with us. And I hope that computer at the Federal Reserve doesn't use uh, any of the uh, 
products that our home computers use that give us the blue screen of death every now and then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I I wonder if uh, I, I know you you're you you're uh, not endorsing uh, Ron Paul or any other candidate, but I, I just wonder, there's a, um, a story in the Christian Science Monitor that the Republican establishment um, intervened in the main elections to uh, deny Ron Paul votes by canceling elections in one county. Did you read that? No, I haven't seen that. That's interesting. Hey. Because the main the main caucus votes there were 38 percent for Romney and 35 for Ron, and I know Ron was hoping to have a, a victory in Maine so that he could say, uh, well, Romney's got some victories and Gingrich has got some victories, and now I have a victory. So right. But, but uh, I hadn't seen that. Is that on the internet today? The Christian Science uh, Monitor story. Yes, it is. As a matter of fact, um, they allege that um, Washington County, Maine, and I'm not familiar with the counties in Maine. Maybe Chuck is, but the Washington County, Maine um, uh, caucuses were canceled Saturday due to the threat of inclement weather. And Paul's, <laughs> and you know, when you think about the Iowa caucuses, <laughs> and Maine people are pretty tough. That seems like kind of a stretch. But the larger question here is whether or not that that is true. Um, is is there a uh, a strategy on the part of the Republican establishment to see to it that Paul doesn't move forward? And if so, why? Well, they don't want him in there because most of the establishment Republicans are liberal types. They're the neocons, neoconservatives who want socialism and internationalism. Uh, so they don't want Ron Paul. Was it Newt Gingrich early in the campaign said no decent American would want Ron Paul for president, <laughs> insulting anybody who's in favor of uh, of, of Ron Paul. Well, I've, I've heard Imagine. a few decent Americans say the same thing about Newt Gingrich, but uh, you're right. <laughs> well, anyhow, uh, what's interesting to me is that while we haven't endorsed Ron Paul for president, Ron Paul has endorsed the John Birch Society. He, he said the John oh, Birch Society is a great patriotic organization featuring an educational program solidly based on constitutional principles. I congratulate the society in this its 50th year. I wish them continued success and endorse their untiring efforts to foster less government, more responsibility, and with God's help, a better world. Well, That's Ron Paul. Yeah, and uh, well, I realize that you you can't in, endorse him back, but but you can thank him for his endorsement. But uh, well, we certainly have thanked him, and of course, yes. we we've had him speak at our events, and uh, he gave us that endorsement on the uh, occasion of our 50th anniversary, which was in 2008. The John Birch Society has been in business for 54 years. I know, and uh, a lot of people waking up. There's a lot of people waking up to the fact that they ought to listen to the John Birch Society. Well, of course, those of us on the left are waking up to the to the fact that uh, we should teach more people not to listen to it. But that's that's a different show. Uh, <laughs> back to <laughs> all right, back to Chuck's point uh, about the Federal Reserve and and uh, and money, um, and combining this with what appears to be a, a Republican establishment to anoint Mitt Romney and to be sure that Ron Paul never gets anywhere near the White House. Now. If, if that's the case, who would win in that situation in the Republican side? What, what Republicans would be better off if, if uh, Mitt Romney won, and what Republicans would be worse off if Ron Paul won? Well, 
I don't know. I think the country would be worse off if any of the candidates other than Ron Paul win. Uh, that's as close as I'll come to an endorsement. <laughs> okay. as, as far as as far as uh, uh, which Republican is better or worse than 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 the other, I I, I think they're all pretty much the well, same. Well, I'm referring to Republican constituencies or, or constituencies in the country. For instance, would Wall Street be better off if Ron Paul won or lost? Oh, Wall Street's behind the Democrats. Wall Street's very much in Obama's camp. Uh, well, uh, well, well, not according to, uh, to to recent campaign contributions, but uh, um, we, what do you think that a Ron Paul presidency, what kind of an impact would it have on Wall Street? Well, it might have the impact of getting us back to sound money, which I don't think that some of the manipulators in Wall Street want. Yeah. Uh, they know how to leverage. They know how to with hedge funds. They know how to do with all kinds of things. They know how to make money while the country is going to uh, to the dogs. So they, they're they not interested in having Ron Paul as president. They don't want their friends at the Federal Reserve uh, uh, have, have their power taken away from them either. So uh, that's why I say I think most of the uh, most of the Wall Street Journal, not Wall Street Journal, Wall, Wall Street people that I know of are still backing Obama for, for re-election. Well, they've managed let, let me just interject a little bit, Patrick. I think that Wall Street tends to support whichever side they think is going to win, uh, and that's who they contribute to as long as they're sort of on the so-called plantation. And Barack Obama received more Wall Street donations than any candidate in history in 2008. Maybe now they're looking at Republicans because they, they think they're going to win. But um, I think that the the evidence, one one piece of, of many evidences we could give with regard to Barack Obama being a creature of Wall Street, is his secretary of the Treasury is Timothy Geithner, who is the former chairman of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. That is a truth that both progressives and conservatives are very unhappy about. <clears throat> well, well there, then we should know, listen the, to the Birch Society. The initial team, the initial team to deal with the economic travails of our country that Obama selected, were Geithner and Lawrence Summers, and Paul Volcker, and they're all members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and that's the organization that wants socialism and internationalism. These are the people promoting the New World Order, which would mean the end of the United States as an independent nation. So. Uh, this is this is the kind of thing that you're getting. Now, some of these people were Republicans, all right, that Obama appointed. And uh, I, I never forget Paul Volcker when he was uh, being grilled by the Senate to be the head of the Federal Reserve, and this goes back almost 30 years. He said that the, the standard of living of the average American has to come down. I don't think you can uh, avoid that. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Volcker. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've succeeded. But both progressives and uh, and conservatives were not happy about Mr. Volcker or or the uh, the the Wall Street influence in, in this president's and the last president's and the presidents before that's uh, uh, influence. I noticed that, um, however, the report on campaign contributions to date are that uh, Mitch Romney is well ahead of uh, President Obama. On uh, collecting money from Wall Street, but uh, uh, well, let me that, get back right, to that, that, Ron Paul. And that's well, not uh, a compliment for Romney, uh, in my that, view. That, well, that, you, you could say that if they're all his friends. Let's get back to Ron Paul. 
Well, well no, well, let's get back. Let's get back to you. You you claim to be a progressive, and it sounds to me like you're cheating the Birch Society out of dues. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one thing that Chuck and I have learned uh, in the two and a half years we've been on the show is that we don't disagree on everything. There are some things we do agree on. Right? Well, good. Um, that, uh, Ron Paul has been calling for an audit of, of the Federal Reserve. It's about what, time, what, wouldn't you think? After a hundred uh, years. What, well. Let me ask right. you this: What uh, what would such an audit do, and what would, could we do with the information from that audit? Well, with the audit would come where the Federal Reserve is putting the money that it creates out of thin air, and what it does with the money, and how it controls this, and how it controls that, and so forth. And that would lead to many, many more American people saying, "Abolish the Fed." And and then, of course, there are people who say, what would you replace it with? Somebody has to manage the money. And the answer is I would replace it with nothing because money does not have to be managed if it is a commodity that people recognize has value. What we have today is a piece of paper. It, it is not gold-backed. It is not silver-backed. It is not copper-backed or platinum-backed or anything-backed. It's backed by the promise of a politician and those usually aren't worth much. Well, what, what, what would prevent Congress, uh, which has the constitutional power uh, we just discussed earlier, from manipulating the currency? Well, if, if, if the Constitution is in force, the Congress would have no power to manipulate the currency. All it would have power to do is to coin the precious metals of the people. Well, who would enforce it? Mr. McManus, I, this is an area where I, I think I disagree with you on in that the, the uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4 says that Congress shall have the power to coin money and regulate the value well, thereof. All right, and what they meant by that was regulating the value of the coinage. We're going to have one-ounce coins. We're going to have half-ounce coins. We're going to have quarter-ounce coins, and these will will be the standard of uh, commerce throughout our country. That's the regulation part of it. Well, if that well, be the case, the then who issues paper currency? Paper currency? I mean, well, yeah. all right. Now, uh, no state, no state can uh, uh, can issue bills of credit. No state can can do a lot of the things the federal government can't do. But there's nothing to say that there can't be private coinage. And there's nothing to say that there can't be private mints. And private mints may indeed have a storehouse of coinage, and it may issue paper money that is backed by what's in the storehouse in their, in their warehouse. And that would be a return to the private issuance of currency. And yes, there would be some fraud, but of course there's a court system to deal with fraud. What we would have if we have what I just suggested is occasional fraud instead of what we have today where we have 100% fraud. Well, well I, I mean, would, can't we have a, uh, a direct uh, issuance of currency by Congress in no. such a way that it's, it's issued interest-free and it's done scientifically? In, in other words, that the amount of money that's issued into the currency is no more or no less than what the currency, what, what the economy needs, that no well, one profits from it. And the whole the whole idea of the gold being stored in, in warehouses. I mean, that's that's a, I, I view that maybe as part of the problem. I mean, that's the international gold. Uh, I mean, that's that's feeding into the whole 
international monetary manipulation. Well, what you're, what you're, you're suggesting is completely unconstitutional. There is no power in the Constitution of the United States for the federal government to issue currency. The word is not well, issue, it's coin. Coin money. Set well, up a mint. Uh, Chuck, I'm still waiting for an answer to who would enforce the, the Constitution. You mentioned the courts, but the courts have to respond to prosecutions. Who would who would prosecute? I would. How would you do it? Are you a federal prosecutor? Am I a federal prosecutor? No, mm-hmm. I would sue. I would sue to get the federal government to stop doing things it has no authorization to do. Well, you could do that now. How come you haven't? I, I'm, I'm not about to enter onto something that isn't going to go anywhere until more American people are awakened. And that's what we do in the John Birch Society. We awaken the public. And we're having a lot of success in recent years. The okay. John Birch Society's influence is soaring. Uh, we, we've noticed. And, and, and uh, uh, apropos of our, of our previous conversation, I just wanted to, to point out that uh, the Center for Responsive Politics has gone through the uh, re- the FCC, FPC reports and found that the financial sector has contributed $33 million to Republican candidates and only $6 million to Obama. So that's almost five times as much to Republicans this year. Yeah, but <clears throat> Obama's already got a billion-dollar war chest. Where did he get no, it? No, 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 he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He hasn't raised that. He said he's planning on raising it. Oh, I see. And he can't, he can't actually raise it now because he hasn't filed for a reelection. So legally, he can't be raising money for the war. He debt. hasn't filed for re-election, and he hasn't produced a legitimate birth certificate either. I mean, what this guy well, is well, quite well, a guy. Well, that's a different show. Yes, I want to go back to Ron Paul, and, and he's got a lot of enthusiasm behind him. There are there are some things he says that are very progressive. There are some things he says that progressives like me recoil from. There is this 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 little kind of dark shadow over over him from the racist comments made in newsletters of 36 years ago. But he seems to keep just moving on and moving on. He never stops, and he's always upbeat. Do, do you know where all that energy comes from? Is it, is it because all the young people in his campaign, or is there something else going on there? Well, I know that the young people in his campaign and, and the number of young people that he's attracted to his, his cause have, has somewhat startled him, and it <laughs> is a motivator. It does it does keep him going, but of course you know even though he's 76 years old he's in great health, uh, he's slim and trim and he uh, uh, I remember one of the debates he said he'd uh, challenge any one of his fellow debaters to do a 25 mile bike ride in the heat of Texas. Oh, I with do him. that. Yeah. <laughs> right. You uh, know was, uh, you claim to be a progressive. You you claim to be a progressive, and I think the, the word progressive has been stolen. I don't think there's anything progressive about socialism, and it sounds to me like you're you're that kind. But I don't know you that well, so maybe I know, we can do word, another show. The word socialism has been stolen too. Republicans use it for anything they don't agree with. So I've, all these terms have been stolen a lot. If you really That's want right. to get out to it, I'm a liberal. Okay, and you're actually, I was a. Uh, uh, in, in high school, I was handed uh, personally a uh, certificate, an award by um, Senator Goldwater. So we all evolve politically, whether or not you believe in evolution. Or devolve, <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> I still have that certificate in the photograph, too. I take what it happened? Um, I, I wrote it.
wrote an essay. I, I won the uh, Los Angeles County um, uh, political essay contest when I was in high school, and uh, got the award. And I, I pull it out every now and then to show it to my uh, my liberal friends to scare them on Halloween. Well, Maybe good. it tickles your conscience. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, I mean, uh, John, what what is the uh, John Birch Society up to these days? I mean, you've got uh, you've got a national organization still. You've got um, regional offices. You have speakers. You've got authors. Uh, I've enjoyed interviewing members of the Birch Society for years. I'm proud to do that. They always are very articulate defenders of the Constitution, and and of our and they're the first people to blow the alarm uh, regarding uh, threats to to our way of life. Well, what what's coming up, John, these days? Well, right now the Birch Society is involved in in reinvigorating our support your local police committees throughout the nation. Uh, the emphasis on local. We want police power uh, controlled locally. We we are greatly fearful of a national police force. Hmm. A good a good uh, synonym for national police force is Gestapo. Uh, is there yes. such a move? Now, is, there, is, is there such yeah, a move underway? To to, well, yeah, Mr. Obama has also already called for, uh, in one of his speeches a year or so ago, he called for a, a uh, effectively a national police force, not under those words, but and then of course you've got the De- Department of Homeland Security that has said that uh, even returning veterans from the military are potential terrorists, people who have a, a, a choose life uh, anti-abortion bumper sticker on their car are potential terrorists and so on. So uh, there's, there's a lot of ominous things going on in that field. Uh, the John Birch Society is also focusing now on the United Nations Agenda 21, which is a stealth method of taking control of communities, cities, counties across the country in the name of the United Nations without the United Nations being mentioned. This is a, this is a story for another day, I guess, but yes. we're very active in that, and we've already seen a lot of communities exit themselves from having been sucked into this Agenda 21 business. Very interesting. We'll have to do that, uh, John. I'd like to get more on that. Maybe be in touch with Patrick with some experts on that and also on the agenda of the National Police Force. Very important issues. Issues I think you and I, Patrick, would probably agree on. Uh, we would probably uh, agree on it, but uh, I I haven't seen any evidence of that. I wanted to ask you, John, w- w- about your foreign policy, the JBS's foreign policy. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about bombing Iran. Where do you guys come down on that? No. We don't want to bomb Iran. If Iran is a threat, it's a threat to Israel, and Israel has the capability of taking care of that problem with it without the United States being involved, if they want to do it. As Do we recommend that Israel do it? No, we don't. We just published an article in our magazine showing that the potential nuclear threat from Iran is greatly overstated, that it would be years, maybe even a decade, before they'd be able to go ahead with any threat to the mankind with nuclear weapons. So, no, we don't want to bomb Iran. Uh, and John McCain even sang a song at one point, the bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. I remember hearing that. Uh, right, right. We're also in the business right now. I just wrote an article for our magazine about about neoconservatisms and how they've how, how they've <clears throat> neoconservatives have taken over the Republican leadership. McCain being a good example of that. Uh, neoconservatives are people who want 
internationalism. They want socialism. They want big government. They want, and and they have moved in and taken control of major sections of the Republican Party, and this has to be exposed. People think that if it's a Republican, he must be good. A lot of these Republicans are very, very bad. <laughs> we agree on John a lot. John McMahon, of the magazine is the New American, by the way. And, um, the New American. You go to uh, jbs.org on the Internet. You can click over to the New American magazine, which is ours, our wholly owned subsidiary. JBS.org. Mm-hmm. Anybody can look there. You can even find a copy of a book uh, available that I wrote, a book called uh, William F. Buckley Jr. Pied Piper for the Establishment. Hmm. We could wow. do a show on that. Wow. That's, yeah. uh, that's quite a topic. Uh, Patrick? Did uh, you have- I, I just uh, think it's interesting that we do agree on a lot of things. Of course, the progressives have, have been um, very much opposed to any kind of a military action on Iran. Um, although we we strongly support uh, the right of Israel to defend itself, but uh, I wasn't aware that the the John Birch Society was uh, was that it took that very strong position, and I'm glad to hear that it does. Uh, well, you know, that, you're like a lot of Americans who who have put the John Birch Society into some sort of a cubicle that doesn't exist. Uh, when they take a look at what the John Birch Society says, what we've done, the successes that we've had over the years. It becomes a whole new ball game. So we urge your listeners to go to jbs.org. We've put up our positions on all kinds of issues on that. We've got a, a bookstore where you can buy a book or, or, or a DVD, and you can take a look at what we say and what we do. And many people are doing that today, and uh, Business for the Birch Society is is close to saying that it's booming. Well, I wow. noticed that you've got a, a couple other positions on your uh, your website. One is that um, you oppose a line item veto, and secondly, you uh, you you say that Congress has the uh, constitutional authority to approve the XL pipeline. And uh, we have about four or five minutes left. I wonder if you could explain uh, your position on those two issues. Well, line item veto gives the president legislative power. And he doesn't have any legislative power, according to the Constitution. So we'd be opposed to a line-item veto business, right? If something's bad, Congress should never have passed it in the first place. If something has been passed, then Congress should repeal it. As far as the Keystone Project, the United States is beholden to many, many countries for oil, and we don't have to be. The recent well, discoveries said, of the oil and, says the, and Congress has the authority. Uh, uh, where in the Constitution does it give Congress the authority to sign a treaty with Canada? It doesn't. Oh, uh, Congress sign a treaty with Canada? Uh, yeah. Would it take? Would it, it take it? Congress no, has it, the constitutional authority to approve the the Keystone XL pipeline project. That would it take? A would, would it? Would it take a treaty to do that? No. No, it wouldn't take a treaty to do that. Keystone would simply take oil that is being delivered to the United States from Canada, put it in a pipeline, get it to a, a refinery in Texas, and so on. No, the alternative is Canada is going to sell its oil to China. They've well, already actually, said that. The pipeline is designed to send the oil to, to, to China. It's, it's very little of that oil is actually going to go to the United States because our, our uh, refineries well, no, the Keystone aren't, project aren't would have it. The Keystone project would have it stay in the United States. There's another no pipeline that they're no talking about. If if we don't have Keystone, 
the, the Keystone Pipeline. There's another pipeline they're talking about getting across Canada to British Columbia and have the oil go by ship over to China. Over to China. I think you're misunderstanding. The Keystone Pipeline terminates in a port which will load tankers and send it to China. It's just a, it's an easier route for them to move their oil to China. Some well, of it I think will you're go missing to a couple the, of no. U.S. Uh, uh, refineries, but U.S. refineries aren't geared to use the uh, tar sands oil. This is a pipeline to China. It's not a pipeline to the U.S. Uh, no, I'm, I'm afraid you're mistaken about that. The Keystone Project that Mr. Obama has said, no, we're not going to allow it, was to go through the United States from Canada down to Texas. There's another pipeline that the Canadians are talking about that would go to British Columbia. That's not Keystone. That's something else. Why would uh, President Obama not want to allow the Keystone Pipeline to come in? I mean, he's talked That's about a good creating a very good jobs and the economy here. Well, the only well, answer yeah. I can give to that question is that Mr. Obama wants to harm the United States. No, it's, it's because that Mr. Obama doesn't want the oil industry to harm the United States. If that pipeline uh, it was built and breaks, it would destroy the Alagala Reservoir, which would decimate American farming. That's one no, reason. it would. The second reason is there's only 2,000 jobs involved, and over half of those would be in China. And that's, that's according to the report of the Keystone Company, as well as to the – that there is – there's very, very little upside to the United States. There's a huge amount of downside to the United States, and I think he's doing the, the, the correct thing here. And don't forget, he also said that he would look at – a, another proposal that, limit, that eliminates the environmental threats there. So he hasn't killed it. He has merely said that we want to go back and have you do it right. And I know this kind of stuff because I did the same thing with the oil, the oil company managers and the offshore pipelines in California under Governor Brown. I know exactly what he's doing there. And it's the okay. right thing for him to do. He's All protecting right. America. All right, I'm going to disagree with you. I think the Keystone Project that ought to be built to get the oil down to the refineries in, in Texas is a very important thing, and I hope it gets through. And I would like to see Mr. Obama stop his uh, his blocking of the project. Okay. Very good. Uh, okay. Mr. McManus, just, uh, we're running out of time again. Let people know how they can get in touch with the John Birch Society, how they JBS. can get a hold of the New American Magazine. JBS.org. That's it. Now, Very from good. there, you can... Link to the New American Magazine. I think if you uh, get on there and ask to have a sample of the magazine sent to you, uh, that they'll do it. They'll send you a sample. You get a chance to look at what it does, what it says, how it operates. I happen to be the publisher of the magazine in addition to being the president of the John Birch Society, so I have a little clout. <laughs> there we go. John, uh, you know, it's an honor, as always, to talk to you. And uh, keep up the good fight. You know, Keep up the good work. You're enlightening don't worry the country, about and that. I really appreciate it. Well, don't worry Very about good. me keeping up the fight. Well, we gotta, we got to make these progressives really progressive instead of regressive. <laughs> Very good. I John, like it's that. been fun talking with you. My pleasure. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Patrick, John F. McManus, the president of the John Birch Society. Less government, more responsibility, and with God's help, a better world. That's Patrick? I can't argue with, with any of that. <laughs> uh, we have to have right-sized government. We have to have responsible corporations and a better world. I'll go along with all of that. Um, we we yeah. need to talk a little bit about our sponsor. Since we have let's a, do it. Yeah, let's, let's do it. And that would be uh, Barton Publishing. Um, Barton and, and, and incidentally, Chuck, your voice sounds a lot better. You must be following some of Barton's uh, recommendations. Oh, always, Patrick. I'm always. I'm a big fan of Joe Barton and his his uh, health uh, health modalities. 
Well, uh, I know I know you can't give away any of the secrets because we want people to buy the secrets, obviously. But um, um, but this weekend, it's there's been a, a, a huge change in your voice. Apparently, the the cold is gone now. Well, it's 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 getting better. I'll say that. I mean, uh, I was in rough shape last week, but uh, Joe Barton again. He has uh, he just publishes ideas that make common sense uh, that that treat various uh, you know maladies just by by foods. Certain things you get in the grocery store. You know, in the case of the acid reflux, apples among other things. We can't mention all of it because you have to buy his publications, which are very affordable. Um, and uh, it, it's stuff that's really life-changing. I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, to manage your health using common sense remedies is the way to go before you go to the big fat drug companies and their, um, their various attempts to get monopoly control of our health modalities. Well, but for our listeners who may not be familiar with, uh, with Barton Publishing, it's... Uh uh, www.bartonpublishing.com, and when you go there, you'll find that there's a there's a list of maladies and a list of articles, and uh, you can uh, click on something that that you're interested in, like diabetes or arthritis, the common cold, and you'll get an opportunity to uh, buy a booklet or a book uh, of natural remedies that can help you with that particular malady. So it's a uh, it's almost like you get to prescribe for yourself, but you can prescribe for yourself because we're all qualified to use food and, and natural remedies, of course. So, so remember, that's www.bartonpublishing.com. And uh, I'm going to go take, uh, I'm going to take a quick break and eat my apple because that's one of the things that uh, Barton has in his, uh, his, his remedies is a, an apple a day. And, you know, it's an old saying, but it works. Of course, there's a lot of other things along with that, too. So, right, sure www.bartonpublishing.com and incidentally Joe Barton is going to be on the show he's going to be on the show next week can't wait yeah right then so yeah well that was so Patrick I think we're going to a break yes Um, I know but I I, Jack McManus is really you know agree or disagree and I disagree with a lot of things um, that that they're up to but they really are well-meaning and they are patriotic and you know they're, they're consistent I'll say that um, yes, and they've been consistent for 50 years. I, I, I remember when uh, they were founded, um, which they were founded, of course, in Southern California. Um, I was a kid, but my, my parents were actually adherents to the John Burke Society. So, Is that um, right? Yes. Oh, yes. My parents were very conservative. My dad was a Navy man from Texas. He was right. very conservative. Um, I thought they were founded in Boston. I think that uh, Robert Welsh, the founder of the Burke Society, set up his um, – his office here in Belmont, Massachusetts. He graduated Harvard. He uh, was a candy manufacturer. He actually made sugar daddies and sugar babies and, uh, and Welsh's great famous candies right? in New England. Yeah, so you're right. It was New England. There was a big, um, a big um, Southern California, Orange County, actually contingent of the uh, of the John Burke Society. But you're right, and I believe that's Welsh's yep. grape juice too. Welsh's grape jam. No, no, that's not. It's not Welsh's grape juice. That's another company. Uh, Robert Welsh was a can yeah he was a candy manufacturer and uh, he made candy that I think was pretty much only available in Boston. Uh, I don't know did you have sugar daddies out there and sugar babies? Oh sure. So oh, then it was a national thing. Yeah. No, and I think that uh, Southern California elected a couple of congressmen who were John Birch members. I, I don't know their names. Any Wants a lot I think. 
That would be before, of, I was, before I was aware of the names of congressmen. <laughs> okay. Uh, but Orange County, up until recently, has consistently uh, elected uh, very conservative uh, congressmen and, and often associated with the, uh, the John Birch Society. That's changed as the, as the demog- demography has changed, but uh, very much so. Um, let's see. Maybe we can find out something about our founder here. Well, in any case, he was, I, I enjoyed talking with him. Of course, uh, like you, I disagree with a lot of things, but... Uh, we do agree that uh, there's too much influence, Wall Street influence, in all uh, administrations, Republican or Democrat. Right. Somehow they seem to get into there. I'm not quite sure. Well, Patrick, you know, you you know, you were hopping on on that uh, the difference in the Democrat. That's a very conventional view. You're quite right to say that uh, the influence is on both, and. The influence, I would argue, has a lot to do with the the currency and the way the Federal Reserve conducts our money because it's the New York branch of the Federal Reserve that almost on a weekly basis um, shops various bonds around to Wall Street companies such as uh, Goldman Sachs and others, and and, and it's a very profitable business. They're making a profit off of the issuance of American currency, and that should not be a profitable uh, item. It It should be basically a neutral item that's issued for the American people. Mm hmm uh, well, I'm and sure I disagree with Jack McManus about gold. Uh, we're going to have yeah, that I, discussion. Uh, and I was just looking at their history, and it was Robert Welsh, December 1958, and he was a World War II Army captain and a candy yep. maker. Uh, it's also right. interesting, interesting that uh, Robert Society is also very Christian, too. I don't know if you noticed that. I, well, I don't think they're Christian in the formal sense. Yeah, in the formal sense. They uh, say... Uh, the society insists that the Ten Commandments should guide all personal and organizational conduct. Well, that's Jewish, too, by the way. <laughs> <It's not just laughs> Christian. Judeo-Christian. And I think it probably is also Muslim. I mean, I, I don't know if they're Christian in the, with a capital C. Yeah. You know, right. they, they, uh, they, they look upon uh, Christianity as part of the, the and, and accurately, as part of the, uh, you know, as I say, the leap motif of the nation. They're not trying to create a theocracy, Patrick. I hope we're not going to have that one again. No, no, I didn't say that at all. Um, uh, I, I reject that the Ten Commandments should be part of our organizational law, but uh, I recognize that. I don't think uh, they're saying it should be either. They're just influenced by it. They're saying that it should be looked at as part of you know, the, the foundation of Western civilization. They're not calling for the Ten Commandments to be passed into law. Well, they're, I mean, they're simply I'll saying the that it's... I'll read you the quote. Okay. Uh, they t- they talk about they want more responsibility, and then they say, quote, right. as for more responsibility, the society insists that the Ten Commandments should guide all personal and organizational conduct. But not government. No, I mean, so they're saying that basically we shouldn't, you know, yeah, but they're not saying, and they're saying it should guide. They're not yeah, saying, and I can yeah. speak to this, they're not calling for the Ten Commandments to be made into the law of the land. They're just looking at it and saying this is the origin of uh, our American system, and, and I think you could make that case. That doesn't mean that they're saying that you have to. They're going to pass the law saying everybody has to observe the Sabbath. No, that, you're, that, you're that's right. not yeah. part of. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just yeah. want to be clear. Um, 
a, a couple other things in the news caught my mind, and one was that uh, there was an attempt to um, assassinate Israeli officials in uh, India and Georgia. Did you see that? I did, but Patrick, can I just go back yeah, for sure. just a few seconds yeah. to talk to bring back the issue of uh, we were talking about evolution, and I don't really get. I want to get only into the philosophical end of this. You said that don't you think that mankind has evolved because we are healthier and bigger and our teeth are stronger than they were maybe uh, 2,000 years ago, maybe 5,000 years ago, however long ago. And I, what I would ask you is this, Patrick. If you took a man who was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles uh, in a very nice family and you put him next to a man who was born in Borneo, and had never, you know, or the Yanomano people, would you say that one of them had better teeth than the other? Well, you'd have Probably. to look at each individual's teeth. Uh, they're different. The, the Borneo um, uh, diet is much different than the American diet. But the, so I, I would imagine that there is some difference there. But uh, having, without having looked in the mouths of uh, Bo- people in Borneo, uh, I couldn't tell you. I will tell you I've... Well, I've uh, I've noticed a difference in, in, in teeth in people I, I saw in Lombok. Um, okay. And, and Lombok, of course, is, is uh, an island in the Indonesian chain. Um, and when I was there, it was, a fair, it was fairly undeveloped. And the, the difference was that they were sharper and they mm-hmm. had a lot more problems with their teeth. Uh, and I don't know if that means well, anything well, I, look, I'm, I'm bringing this up. To, I'm bringing this up to make a point. Maybe teeth yeah. are not a good example. Okay. But simply that you could have someone who is uh, healthier, stronger, bigger, you know, who's a, a product of, um, you know, the American uh, middle class versus someone who maybe is from uh, a primitive tribe in, in, in uh, Brazil. And, you know, would you say that one person is more evolved than the other? I would say that they're both equally co-evolved. Yes. Well, that's my point. They're well, not the point, more evolved. I said co-evolved. And, and it was, well, I don't know what you mean by co-evolved. Co-evolved they're, is, they're, they're, co-evolved is, is a, a biological and, and ecological term which, which indicates the uh, – that a particular species co-evolves, that is, evolves in parallel with its ecosystem, and they both influence each other. And by, in this case, uh, I would say that Americans are evolved to operate within our particular ecosystem. We can read traffic lights. We, we eat processed foods. We, uh, we have a different sense of time. In fact, I saw this in the Amazon a lot. Our sense of time is much more collapsed than, than, say, the sense of time in the people I met in the village in the Amazon. However, they function quite well in um, in their environment. And one thing I noticed is the mosquitoes didn't bother them, but they sure bothered me. So there's there's different evo- there's different evolutions that go on. Neither neither is good better than the other. They're both more appropriate to their to, to their environment. Yeah, but Patrick, you know, I think it was uh, Darwin's one of the one of Darwin's contemporaries, Asa Gray, who was also an evolutionist. He argued this very point with Darwin, and he pointed out that if you took a young man from the Jivaro tribe in Borneo and brought him up in a proper English household and sent him to Cambridge, he would have the exact same abilities and the exact same potentialities as any English uh, person in the same condition. 
and yet he was born in an entirely different environment. The point being that these things are they're environmental. They're people are affected by the environment they live in. It's not biological. It is not evolutionary. Uh, people can be evolved or devolved depending upon, uh, I shouldn't even be using that word. I mean, they can be adapted is the accurate word, depending upon the environment that they live in. And that it has nothing to do with one person being more or less evolved than another. The, it, it's more of an adaptational issue. And uh, it, it's actually a very important distinction because you have people who for many, many, many millennia have lived near the equator, and as a result they've developed a higher level of melanin in their skin to protect them from the fact that the day is longer and that the year of the sunshine is longer in the year. Whereas your people who in the same boat grew up in the Laplands who, whose skin is lighter because there's not as much sun and they need to absorb more sun rays to be healthy. Those are not evolutionary differences. Those are adaptations, you see. And to suggest that it's an evolutionary issue, which is exactly what Darwin suggested and what the theory of evolution suggests, is racist. You know, one is not more or less evolved than the other. It's just that people over time develop different attributes because they're responding to their environment. And, and the fact that mankind generally has improved because we have more knowledge today. We have computers. We learned how to, we learned about the, you know, the caveman learned how to, learned about the wheel, and he learned how to harness fire, and he learned how to, how to do planting as opposed to hunting. I mean, these things are learned. They're, they're science. And they, therefore, we've improved life on Earth for ourselves, and we're healthier and bigger and smarter and fatter and all of that. But, but we're the same biologically. We're not evolved. We're just simply, as, as civilization continues, we gain more experience. And it's a very important distinction. It is an important distinction, and I think you're confusing it. Uh, adaption refers to the process wherein certain groups or individuals change their ways in order to be better suited to the environment or the habitat. And this is the change they need to do in order to survive and maintain their normal functioning in their computer. Uh, evolution takes a long, long time. It's a process in which genetic structure and physical anatomy change in relation to changes happening in the environment. Some of the things you're talking about are actually genetic, the genetic changes are evolutionary rather than uh, adaption. Uh, evolution doesn't occur overnight, but involves generations in order to turn out the best suitable uh, members of the species. And in evolution, you have some adaptions that go on over time and evolve into a species that then, for some reason, doesn't continue on. And I think that was one of the points of, um, of, adapt, of adaption in, uh, that Darwin made. However, uh, Chuck, we may want to continue this later because uh, Dave Johnson's with us. Oh, okay. But I just want to, if I could just quickly state, there is no genetic difference, Patrick, between the Jivero tribesmen and the young men from, from Cambridge. There are adaptational differences, but to suggest that they are genetically different is racist. Uh, let's, let's welcome aboard Dave Johnson. Dave, how are you? I am good. How are you guys today? You guys uh, fighting up a storm? <laughs> well, we just had on the president of the John Birch Society, John F. McManus. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So it was a pretty good talk. Okay. Too bad you weren't substituting, Dave. 
Yeah, really. Uh, I have three things that I've been writing about. And uh, first, uh, a quick short one. I just want to point out that we were all hearing last week about this supposed controversy over the president's uh, health reform requiring insurance companies to cover birth control, no matter who ran them. Uh, that one was, uh, I guess you guys heard about it a lot because it was like the biggest thing in the press. We talked uh, about it. Yeah, every I'd Republican. Every Republican candidate for president was all over. They were saying that the president is anti-religion, that he was attacking religion, all of this stuff, because he said that, look, uh, American women are going to get birth control from their insurance companies, and no one can deny them that. And, in fact, by the way, before I get to my point, uh, the foundation, the legal foundation for this comes from none other than uh, Justice Scalia who uh, wrote, I believe it was the majority opinion, I forget the case, but it was about the use of, uh, wasn't it about the use of mescaline by Indians, where he said that the public concern overrides the religious concern on certain things. So it was Scalia who laid down the foundation. Scalia, who is, who is usually defers tremendously to the Catholic Church, and he's a member of uh, Opus Dei, in fact. But here's what I wanted to point out about this, the huge contrast of this coverage and the Republican reaction and the claims of Obama attacking religion, the same Catholic bishops came out with a similarly strong statement about extending unemployment benefits, saying, you know, they have their religious convictions also say they should be extending unemployment benefits. Now, the Republicans are all fighting against extending the current extension of unemployment benefits. They want to cut unemployment benefits back to 13 weeks. Okay, three months, period. Three months, you're out. No more unemployment benefits. And the Catholic Church is is in an outcry about this, but we're not seeing any coverage of this. We're not seeing anybody talking about the Republicans being anti-religion or attacking religion because they're trying to cut back on unemployment benefits. So I'm just wondering why is there this huge contrast in the media and uh, among the Republicans when it's about birth control, that the president says you've got to provide birth control in your insurance plans. That's attacking religion. But when the Republicans cut back on unemployment benefits, that hurts people. That hurts a lot of people. Uh, to 13 weeks, uh, how come that's described so differently and covered so differently? You asking me, Dave? That's to anybody that wants uh, to speak up. Well, I'll speak up briefly, Callers, Patrick, if you don't mind. First of all, I've come, I've come to the uh, opinion that this whole business of um, Catholic institutions having to provide birth control and the other things is a deliberate attempt by the Obama administration to change the subject. They've, they've gotten the to everyone talking about, and they've got the, they totally suckered the conservatives and, and Republicans into talking about social issues so they could then be attacked as anti-women while, in fact, we're taking our eye off of the economic ball, which is the Obama administration's record on the economy and which is what Mitt Romney wants to talk about. So I view this as a classic political diversion 
a, a classic attempt to change the, the subject. It happens every election, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, where there are these sort of uh, pet issues that are floated as a way to get people's eye off the ball. Now, as far as whether or not it's, you know, the Catholic Church makes a statement, a political statement about uh, unemployment policy or anything else, that's one thing. It's another thing to have the government tell Catholic institutions that they have to do whatever it is they're telling them they have to do. I mean, one thing is like apples and oranges. Political, uh, religious groups always make political statements, and they should, I think. They have a right to do that. It's, they're expressing an opinion. They're not, it's not their doctrine. I mean, I don't think the church has, as part of their uh, college of cardinals, that governments have to provide unemployment. But they do have an issue around abortion. Patrick? Uh, thank you, Chuck. Uh, actually, this, the, uh, the case you're talking about, Dave, was Employment Division versus Smith. And you're right, that was uh, uh, Justice Scalia said that. You know, it, it's interesting the way uh, two people can look at the same set of facts and come up with similar but very different conclusions. Um, I looked at this and I thought, hmm, this particular issue, of, well, first of all, we, uh, the, 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 the press and the conservatives, of course, have completely ignored the fact that, the, um, that 28 states have required this for the past 10 years, and the Catholic Church said nothing, and eight states actually required that churches do it, that, that not just institutions, but churches do it. When the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare came out and said, we're going to exempt churches from this, nobody said thank you. Geez, you're, you're uh, expanding our religious rights, and we really appreciate the fact that you're respecting our request to do this. They were absolutely silent. And then three weeks later, a very good uh, economic report came out, the third one in three weeks, and all of a sudden Republicans had nothing to talk about because the economy was starting to work again. So they discovered this war on religion, which was actually an increase in the rights of religion. So I see it as the Republicans attempting to change the subject, and they twisted the whole thing around in order to do that. You see it as the Obama administration trying to change the subject. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure why they would want to since the news was good, but it's interesting we can both look at the same set of facts and come up with diff uh, totally mirror image conclusions. This, this might be a good well, time for listeners to, to just describe the distinction here just pretty clearly. What's going on is that the Obama administration has said that churches and church employees that are, uh, that are members of the church that when they are given health care, the churches can uh, go ahead and say no birth control in this health care plan. But that when it's a larger institution that employs lots of people, not necessarily for church functions, for example, a Catholic hospital, when they provide insurance for their janitors, okay, that those janitors are not necessarily members of the church, they're just people hired for a job, that that insurance has to, like all other insurance plans, cover birth control. And it's all about birth control, not abortion. It's about contraceptives. So just clear what the distinction is. The Obama administration actually expanded, as, as uh, Patrick said, the rights of a church to not provide birth control in their insurance plans, but said that, yes, when it's to regular people who just have regular jobs, it has to be like every other insurance plan and cover birth control. And the Catholic Church is is upset because they want to deny birth control to non-Catholic employees. 
Scott? To non-Catholic employees? I think to all of them. That's I right. Mean, they don't to want to this is about. To any of their employees. If it's large things like the church has a hospital or other things, but that it is the church because the church runs it, even though janitors at the hospital, nurses at the hospital, you know, the staff behind the counters and stuff, the standard insurance plans that that are offered to them have to cover birth control. That's what this is all about. And the Catholic Church is saying, no, we insist on the right to deny birth control in our insurance plans to everybody that works at this hospital. Well, that's actually, right. That's Dave, Patrick, uh, my question to you is, why did you change your position on this issue? Because when the issue first came to light last week, and we had several guests on, including Albert Navarra, the uh, constitutional expert, when, when you first heard about it, you were against it, and you said so clearly, and then by Friday you were for it. Of course, now the Obama administration has changed its mind, but I, my question to you is why, what, what constituted the change, Patrick? Uh, well, actually, if you'll recall, what I said was the women should have access to insurance that, that covers birth control, but I didn't, didn't think that the way the administration went about it was proper, that it used a section of the law which required preventative services, and that uh, had the effect of making pregnancy a disease. I don't think pregnancy should be called a disease. Women should just have uh, access to birth control, period, as part of regular uh, medical. So I'm for access to birth control under their insurance policies, but I'm, I'm against the administration calling it a disease. Now, the bishops have upped the ante. They came out this morning <coughs> requiring, uh, demanding that the president exempt all, and I'm reading for the L.A. Times here, all Catholic employers who would, who, let's say, it was, they demanded a much broader conscious exemption so that Catholic employers, not just hospitals, but anybody who's Catholic who's an employer, would not be required to subsidize birth control for their employees or for students at Catholic colleges. So they want to even broader. They want that means, Catholic. That means if the executives at General Electric have their hundreds of thousands of employees, they can den if they're Catholic, they can deny them birth control. Yeah, so this is an attack on birth control. No, no, wait a minute. I don't think that's what that means, Dave. I think it's just Catholic but, institutions. They're not telling No, no, no. Now they're saying anyone who is a Catholic who owns a business or runs a business, any business. Well, I, I, would, my I point, disagree with that. I mean, is that right? My point that's was, look the, at the, the difference in coverage right of this. Look at the difference in coverage and of politicians laying everything down on this. The Republicans have come out against birth control here, but what about when these same Catholic bishops talk about unemployment benefits? All They've not come out against birth control, Dave. They have not come Pardon? out against birth control, Dave. And that's what they this have, is. Uh, that's what no, this they, is. they have not. They're saying birth control no. is a sin. No, they're not. They were actually asked this question directly at one of the debates, and only one of them said that, and that was Rick Santorum, and he said it Who's as a personal opinion. Fine. He's he said now that the leader as a personal of the party opinion. in the polls. That's fine. But, Dave, let me just, uh, again, and, and please don't interrupt here because you made a very broad statement. The, all of the other candidates said they did not think birth control is an issue. And, by the way, again, we're talking about more than birth control. Uh, and that Rick Santorum expressed it simply, and he was very clear about it, that it was his personal opinion and that he did not see this as a public policy issue. So I just want to make sure that, that that's corrected. No one is coming out against birth control. And the way the, issue, the Catholic bishops are, but no one in the, in, the, in the Republican race, the issue as it has always been framed, and they may be right or wrong, but the way they framed it is an issue of religious freedom. 
they're not coming out against birth control. I just want to be, let's just get that clear. Well, what about well, we're framing though? this as, as a denial of birth control, so they can frame it as denial Fine. of religious liberty. But the, but the Republicans have said that it's a religious freedom issue. They're not coming out against birth control. That's all. Right. They're saying that because this religion, they're saying because this, they're saying because this religion is against birth control, it is an attack on the religion itself to say that when they provide services to the public, they have to provide equal services to all of the public. Yeah, but they, but no. they're not. It's not because of it's not because of the specific issue of birth control. It's because they're claiming that unless there's a very compelling reason, like for example, using peyote or something, that religion should be given a wide latitude of freedom with regard to how they conduct their business. It's not it's not the, the issue itself. And as far as birth control or morning after pill or any uh, and the other issues, sterilization, Catholic churches or Catholic hospitals, I should say. And uh, colleges have never offered it before. So the question comes up, why now is this suddenly, is it so so compelling that they offer it? Now, here we go. What if if a Seventh-day Adventist church or a member of the Seventh-day Adventist who owns a business wants to provide insurance that refuses to allow blood transfusions? Well, then that would be an issue, but I don't think they are. I mean, the Catholic well, Church, on the other hand, has never offered these services for over 100 years. I mean, it's sort of like so you have to ask yourself, what, what is the sudden public policy need in the year 2012 that suddenly Catholic hospitals are going to be, by mandate, required to offer this service? Not it's hospitals, that simple. the and, insurance and the plans. All right, well, and the, the insurance plans. The one that's, the one that's been completely that, ignored... But, but, for the past 10 years by 28 states, and, and there was never a problem for them. Their churches were required to do it for the past 10 years in eight states. There was never a problem for it. All of a sudden, when the, the president says, we're going to give you more religious freedom and respect you more, all of a sudden it's a problem. So that's why well, I why, think this, Well, this, Patrick, this, this, this why is that? I mean, first of all, I don't think, I don't get, I mean, it seems almost Orwellian to suggest that, that the president's offering more religious freedom, but you may be right, Patrick. Why is it then... If the Catholic churches or the Catholic institutions were offering this in the past 10 years, like you say, and I don't, I'm not going to argue with it if you say so, why now are they suddenly concerned? What is the issue for them then now? The reason is because we're coming up to the introduction of the new health reform plan where we're defining what the public will get, and they're saying that when you get an insurance policy, with a health insurance policy, it must cover Birth control. That's what they're saying. That's why it's now. It's because it's right now that they are defining mm. the whole thing. It's not the only thing they did. It's the thing that raised the big public controversy. But they they did this. Well, they I mean, did that's, this that's as part of a package of everything they're doing, defining what health insurance will offer. Well, putting aside the whole issue of the Catholic Church, it brings up a much broader question, which is what right does the government have to force any of these things? I mean. Uh, you know, why are they in the business of uh, forcing insurance companies? I, I, in my opinion, insurance companies should only be required to cover catastrophic illness. The rest of it should be voluntary. I mean, the cost of insurance, the cost of medicine would go down if the state and now the federal government stopped with these mandates because these things are not free. You know, Massachusetts, for example, one of the reasons why we're looking now at this point at a huge increase in insurance coming down the pike is because there's something like, I don't know, 50 mandates all put in by lobbyists 
who demanded that their various modalities be covered by law. And we now find out that Governor Deval Patrick, and I don't know if this is true in other states, who's a liberal Democrat, has set up a PAC, and that the, the large lion's share contributors to that PAC are health insurance companies. Now, I don't know if that's true in the Obama administration. I'm not sure that's true in other states. But it seems to me that all of these mandates are making the insurance companies awfully fat. Why is the government involved in mandating any of these things? It's the job of our government. The core job of the government is to define these kind of things, that when a company offers what it calls health insurance, this is what must be in it. This is what they can do. This is what they cannot deny you. Well, why? It was the, it mean, it was the lack bad. of government. It, it was the lack no, 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 of government involvement that allowed these companies for so many years to wait until you got sick and then say, "Oh, we're not going to cover that," which was the problem that led to the whole health insurance reform was that these companies were cheating people. It is the job of government to regulate well, those kind of things. That but, kind Dave, of look, fraud. I would argue that I would, go, I would meet you halfway in, in that I think that the government has a compelling public responsibility to make sure that citizens have catastrophic coverage, to make sure that things that we can't afford are covered, and that, uh, in a sense, I mean, I've advocated, for example, a private insurance account instead of Medicare where a portion of the money goes toward purchasing catastrophic health insurance for everybody. But okay. beyond that, then, issues like, like birth control or morning after pills, I mean, people should be free to be able to buy insurance or add those as riders to their policy if they want those things. But if you're going to have the government force anyone, not just Catholic institutions, to, to have those things, it's going to raise the cost of it. And the cost of insurance is about to go up again. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the whole idea of selling this plan to the American people was that the cost would go down. It hasn't. It's gone up. And I think that it's because the, of these mandates the on the state level. It's more of a state problem than federal, by the way. doesn't kick in until 2014. Any increases in costs are not from the Obama health plan. But let's say that the health plan only covered catastrophic uh, insurance, as you suggest, would it be the government's mm -hmm. job to say, if you sell a catastrophic insurance policy, suppose your religion doesn't believe in right arms, and somebody goes then to the hospital with their right arm having been, uh, I don't know, stomped on by an elephant or something, is it okay for an insurance policy to then offer to then you get told, no, I'm sorry, this insurance policy doesn't no, cover not. right arms. If you get, no, you know, you're right, Dave. It's not well, okay for someone to have their right arms. If you now stuff, offer a comprehensive insurance so policy, why is it okay for some employers to say, oh, we don't cover birth control? Why because is that okay? The, because right arms fall under the category of catastrophic health insurance. But if you lose a right arm, you could die. Yeah, but if I you mean, offer no, it's catastrophic. If you it's, are anyway offering comprehensive, not catastrophic. Well, Dave, I'm suggesting the that comprehensive. To say, well, I agree with you, but I'm, I'm suggesting that the government shouldn't be in the business of regulating comprehensive health insurance. They should have a role in making sure the catastrophic health insurance is in place, but things that are more elective in nature. There's no, you know, when the government starts mandating these things, it drives up the cost of premiums. It drives up the cost of insurance, 
And it's something that should be done by employers if they want to offer it as a rider to their employees. And it would be a lot cheaper for everybody if it was done that way rather than having these things, these mandates, which is really the cause of the rising of of health care, and it's a ripoff. It is a payoff but, to the big, fat insurance companies, and that's why they're all supporting liberals like Deval Patrick. That's why Deval Patrick is here. getting rolling in money from health insurance companies, and I would bet you he's typical of other liberal governors. The way we got here, though, was from lack of government involvement in health insurance, and what happened no, was no, we I got these agree. huge monopolies that had so much power, and then what happened was people were discovering when they got sick that the insurance companies were refusing to cover what they were, were thought well, was Well, I agree with you, covered. Dave. If, if they're refusing okay. to cover catastrophic uh, care, then they should, be, even catastro- they should yeah, go to even prison. Catastrophic. But, but the problem is that these insurance companies were sending lobbyists up to Beacon Hill and up to Sacramento and up to all these other state capitals getting these mandates put into the law. And that increased the cost of insurance for everybody, and it raised the cost of medical costs for everyone. Those should well, not we be. Have this That's lar- you're right. We system. have a larger problem of this ability of big, wealthy, powerful corporations to influence our government and get the government to do things that mandate or whatever we all of then. us. And we need to find a way to get that influence of wealth yeah, and power over our democracy care. out of it. Pardon? Yeah, go to catastrophic care only and get them out of these mandates. The mandates well, we are doing nothing but fueling these big – as I said, Dave, you and I agree here, it seems. They're fueling these big, fat health insurance and health hospitals and everyone else who are making a ton of money, and the cost of premiums keep going up. No, we, the it, only thing that the government has a compelling role in as a public policy matter is catastrophic illness. That's something – because that's something that people can't well, afford. People we, can afford to buy their own democracy, uh, birth control pills. And by the way, birth control people, is mostly free. We, yeah. the people, decided that actually we want our government to have a compelling interest in mandating or in providing insurance coverage to everybody. Well, we, the we people, might be making decided. another decision in November, Dave. I, that, I think we, the people, will be talking in yes, November. We all should have health insurance coverage. No, I think coverage, we'll, be, health we'll, we'll be saying it in November. We'll see who, what right. we, the and people, the say when they showed, elect the president. The polls showed that what people wanted was something like Medicare extended to everybody, but we ended up, as you say, through lobbyists. With this mandate, the government mandating that we have to buy private health insurance instead. So, so well, now Med- that we well, all have way, to Medicare, buy private health insurance... Dave, Medicare is something that came up during my campaign for Congress in that Medicare since 1965 has not been buying the lowest cost modalities. They have lobbyists in Washington getting them purchasing expensive mandates and getting them – it's completely corrupt. Uh, You you know, I mean, there's a reason why – and by the way, whatever happened with Barack Obama talking about a half a trillion dollars in Medicare waste – what happened to that? Why didn't he cut that waste? They did cut that, and then the Republicans campaigned that Obama was cutting $500 billion from no, Medicare. No, no, no. That actually he was he, the Yeah, but he wasn't cutting the, the waste. He was cutting, was he was cutting people's hip replacement theme. surgeries. That was the no, main no, 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 no. theme of the Republicans taking over the Congress. No, the wait a minute. Dave. He, was, he wasn't cutting the... 
He wasn't cutting the waste the and the fraud. The he was cutting the legitimate on. costs, people's hip replacement surgeries, the the things that people had paid for all their lives. on campaign ads last year when the Republicans took the Congress was ads saying Obama was cutting half a trillion for Medicare, and that was the waste-cutting efforts over the no, next no, that 10 was, years. Dave, you and I well, disagree. He was not cutting waste. He was not cutting fraud. He was cutting actual things. Of course, he was cutting not stuff cutting that people should get. Of no, 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 no. They're they're hip replacements well, no, they, like they, they actually oh. were. They actually are cutting hip replacements, and the things that the Republicans are concerned about. Of was, course, that no, that's was not waste. To cut that's waste. a legitimate cost. People paid into that system all their life. They're entitled to their hip replacement. That's what right. they, what they, they claimed. <laughs> sure, go ahead, Patrick. Oh, they are. Please. Uh, uh, hip replacements are are being cut. Um, metal on metal hip hip replacements are being phased out because it turns out they don't last as long as they were advertised for. And nylon or carbon fiber hip replacements are being phased in. That's the cut that's being uh, being taken there. And, oh, okay. I'm, and I'm very aware of that because I'm down the line. I may have to 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 do one of those. So I've been I've been keeping my eye on it. OMB announced um, in uh, last November that the administration has cut $17.6 billion in fraud from the Medicare program, specifically uh, decreases in payment errors in Medicare, Medicaid, uh, in Medicare and, and Medicaid, and those were payment errors that were either mistaken or were fraudulently done. In addition, there is now a task force uh, working out of the Department of Justice which focused only on companies that defraud Medicare by billing to imaginary doctors or billing, billing to patients that don't exist or for services that were never deleted. They expect to reduce about another $11.5 to $12 billion this year in that. So they're working on that. Right, that's and that is the kind of cut. That is the kind of cut. You're talking about a half a trillion dollars. That's that's, yeah, that's, that's right. That paltry. is the kind of thing that was in there. Things like replacing expensive metal-on-metal metal hip replacements that wear out with what Patrick said. That's the kind of thing that was in the health reform that cuts $500 billion from Medicare. And Republicans campaigned saying Obama is cutting $500 billion from Medicare. That was the biggest ad expenditures in every state in the Republican campaign for the Congress. And seniors, for the first time, voted more Republican than Democratic, and Republicans then took over the Congress. Yes, that's what mm -hmm. happened. You know, Dave, why is it then that, that uh, both, in a sense, both Democrats and Republicans have resisted this idea that Medicare should respond to the lowest bidder or at least to a competitive bidder when purchasing services? Why is it that that's had such trouble passing through either Democrat or Republican Congresses? That, that was why is written it that in to the Medicare reform. What you just said was written into the Bush Medicare reform, the one where they had that vote that was held for five hours overnight while they twisted arms to get the last Republican vote to approve that. That's where that comes from. They're well, they not allowed I, to take I didn't competitive did. bids or go to lower bids on things like pharmaceuticals and stuff. It was written into you, you the know, law. Something, no, you're right way, about that, thing. but unfortunately with both houses Chuck, of Congress that have never Chuck, allowed that. Chuck, the member yep. of Congress who led that through the Congress, who led that reform through the Congress, immediately left office 
and then became the head of the lobbying organization, the pharmaceutical group, for millions of dollars a year. He immediately left Congress to take huge, huge money after spearheading the getting that through the Congress that Medicare is not allowed to negotiate lower rates. Yeah, but look, who was that, by the way? Billy Tosman. Yeah, but that, that's, that's been an issue that's been brought up every every session since 1965. That's nothing new. And it's one of these things that, uh, you know, the, the system is corrupted by. You know, it's a, it could right. be done more efficiently, by, and I think we all agree about that. But, but Jack the problem, Abramoff. I think what the... Yeah, Jack well, we Abramoff had Jack, talked about the process. The he did. When he was a lobbyist, he talked about the processes. He said, as soon as who you're talking to in the staff of the congressman or the congressman understands that you can give him a job or her a job when they that's right as soon as they leave office for millions of dollars all of a sudden you own them he said that's how it works in yeah, absolutely Zed. we agree we on need that. to I mean, prohibit them from taking system. jobs we need to prohibit I members agree. of congress and their staff from taking jobs after they leave congress for significantly higher amounts than they're paid as congressional staff. Allowed, I think they should be banned for life. No, you and I agree on that. We yeah. have had Jack right. Abramoff yeah. on the show. It's very corrupting. But, but Both houses are totally passed. corrupted by that. The reason we can't get that passed is because they all want to take jobs for significantly higher amounts. So that they no kidding. Congress. Yeah. <laughs> they all do it, and it's a, it's very corrupt. We agree. Not all. By the no, way, they what's do the not all do well, not, No, not all, but, but a large of number it. of them. Uh, a lot of them are doing it, and it's very corrupt. I think we agree on that. Dave, uh, what's actually, the business the new head of communist China? He wants to talk oh, about Oh, yeah, you want to talk about that. But one more thing, like, what's his name? Representative Bob Barr, was that his name? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's one who didn't. He's, yeah, he's he been didn't, a good exactly. guy. Exactly. A lot of them don't. No, a lot of them don't. Like, Russ Feingold, by the way, is an example of a senator who did not take a big, right. fat job when he left. He ended up becoming right. a college okay, professor. So he turned so they don't all. Dylan Radigan gets into that. No, they don't all do it, but a lot of them do, right. and it's very corrupt. We all agree on that. Yeah. So uh, you want to talk about the upcoming head of the commies Okay, the, the current vice president of China is touring the United States, uh, Xi, X-I, uh, Jin. It's pronounced Xi. X-I is Xi. Xi Jinping, right? Yeah. He is the current vice president. He is understood that next year, 2013, he will become the leader of the Communist Party of China, which makes him the head of China, which a guy named Hu has now. But mm-hmm. then who's on first? And then Xi will be on, that's bad joke, next year. He is currently touring right. the United States in a reciprocal visit from our vice president, Biden, toured China. He's now in Washington, and they'll be starting meetings, I think, tonight or tomorrow in Washington. Then he's going to Iowa, and then he's going to California, where they'll be talking local trade issues. But he's a interesting guy. He's touring the country, sort of a preparatory get-to-know-you kind of a thing. Now, what's interesting is that uh, this is at a crucial time, both for China and us, obviously. China is facing serious unrest at home, serious pressures around the world because of their up-till-now policies of currency uh, manipulation, 
all kinds of uh, trade cheating and things they've been doing to build up this vast reserve of foreign currency and this vast, for them, a trade, uh, a positive trade balance, which is uh, trade deficits for most of the rest of the world. Well, they bring in all of the manufacturing and industries and companies into China. So what has come out of that, though, now is that there are these extremely wealthy interests in China who are pushing to keep things the way they are instead of starting to use that massive amount of currency reserves to start buying stuff from others to start uh, helping uh, reverse the inflation that Chinese working people are experiencing. Chinese working people don't have it so good, and they're keeping it that way. Uh, they they did promise 13% a year of, of wage increases. Unfortunately, the rural Chinese don't get that. They have things really bad in rural China, and there's a lot China could do to start changing these things, but now they have the same problem we do. They built up these huge, wealthy, powerful interests that are now, you know, they have uh, members on the Politburo, they have friends on the Politburo, the same sort of thing now that happens everywhere else. I do not know how strong China's anti-corruption rules are up at the top, but it's looking like they aren't strong enough. So they're trying to keep that stuff in place in China, which will keep these trade imbalances really bad, which will keep the inflation pressures, it will keep the rural people down. There's things China could do that would then greatly, greatly improve the whole world's economy and their own, but they're not doing them because over there they've got a few people making out really good and they're using that power to keep things the way they are. So that's, that's what's going on with China in a so they're, they're very background brief. Here. Uh, yeah, very, his father was also a very high party official uh, under Mao and was one of the leading reformers under Mao, so much so that Mao eventually jailed him because he was uh, trying to fight corruption within the, the Mao regime. He was rehabilitated and uh, after 14 years in jail, and his, when he was a high official, um, she lived in a privileged compound when he was jailed. She and his uh, his mother and, and brothers and sisters were sent to um, uh, farms where they had to um, uh, eat. Uh, all they had to eat was, was raw grain and gruel, and they worked 12 hours a day. So he's lived with the common people, and eventually he worked his way back up to where he is now. But he spent, uh, I think, seven years in a re-education camp because of his father. And then his father was brought out of jail, rehabilitated, and made a, uh, a senior official again. Um, he's, he's the only major official in the Chinese um, uh, regime right now who is known uh, and spoken of as not being corrupt. So we may have a huh, different animal to deal with. I really believe that. His father helped build the yeah, big right. manufacturing city of Shenzhen as part of that's his right. policies. Yeah. So, if he, so that's here, one more thing about practice. this guy Xi. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing about this right. guy Xi, which is very interesting. His daughter's at Harvard. Yeah, he's going to go visit her. So, so he's not going mean, to have this like, weird... I, I, I almost think that you're talking... It's like you're talking about Gorbachev here. <laughs> you know, the way the left... Well, no, the unfortunately... I love I love Rush Limbaugh. He plays uh, Darth Vader, you know, bum bum bum. And Gorbachev is coming off the plane. Here he is, Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. The left is swooning. I mean, come on, this guy. These you don't know what he's a he's a reformer. We're, we're I mean, not you know, swooning. We're 
we're describing. But I just want to say one thing. Ah, I think yes, people should listen. Course. People should listen to your show, not Russia's show. So, so right. is that what you're doing? I, know, with but I love that. I love that routine. I don't know if you ever heard him do it. It's so funny. No, I, I, have. I haven't because I. Well, yeah. He may report. I'm too busy listening to your show, but party. He may that. No, may it sounds not like a, I, mean, I remember when Deng Xiaoping rules. passed away. People were practically, you know, genuflecting in joy, you know, in the in the accolades. I mean, these bloody-handed dictators are responsible for the murders of millions of people. You know, in China right now, they've got the Lao guy system. Hundreds of thousands of people. You know, we had the, we had this guest on a while back who's extolling the virtues of communist China. She had the nerve to mention Guantanamo Bay. You know, China. I mean, we have no idea. What kind of awful, uh, kind of suffering and depravity these hundreds of thousands of people have to deal with every day in well, we China? Do, actually. Because there's no freedom. No, we really do. we we know a little bit because there's a couple of things that have slipped out, but there is no freedom of, of press there. I mean, this whole idea that this guy, oh, he's a reformer. Yeah, right. I mean, and they let him out of prison. I mean, are we supposed to feel sorry for him? You know, uh, no, these, what we're supposed to do is to understand who the new leader of China is going to be because we're going to have to deal with them for the next 10 years. And so right now it's our well, job to figure out Well, why would we assume that any of them – I mean, the, 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 it's incredibly naive and almost imbecilic to think that any of the leaders of China are going to be any different than any of the others because he disagreed well, I, with Mao Zedong. I mean, well, look I, at I, Stalin his father, did, but I, his father did, but I think what I was saying was that – We've got this situation where this country is cheating and where they have these wealthy, powerful interests now who want to keep it the way things exactly are. Wealthy, so we're going to wait and see state. how things turn out. One you know, the, to suggest of, that there's interest there, you're, out, you're putting it in a, in a context that would indicate that there's, you know, economic or, or political freedom there. It is the state that's cheating because it's a state central government it's also that the controls state, but they the economy. They have now created these... They have well, created actually, that's not true. very wealthy interest people oh, that's not, who have that's millions true. and billions of dollars who now exert undue influence over that system as well because they have so much money, as well, well as I mean, look, the state interests, state-owned industries, and things like that. All of this is a juggernaut that we're up against that we have to try to figure out how to work with as it proceeds. Dave, Chuck, I would argue I that, agree- that... Mostly in agreement with you, Chuck. About yeah, okay, that, about all of this. I You're would right. argue that these, that these people who have millions and billions of dollars, they have probably less money than Mao Zedong had in terms of probably, total probably, control yeah. of all the economy. Right. You know, and, so, but, but either way, of course, it's corrupt because the only reason they have that money is because they've got state power. I mean, they have a monopoly right. One there. of the things that we see well, coming from that, for example, there was a great uh, series of things about how the iPhone is made. Now, it's uh, in the New York Times recently that has really helped people's understanding of this system they have uh, because right. it described how companies like Apple, and it's not just Apple, it's all of them, are able to take advantage of these workers who are oh, yeah. kept I'm sure we, we know the in these dormitories. There, sure. Say what? I'm sure we know the tip of the iceberg on that one. And they're rousted at midnight. They say, we, we want to mm. get a new glass screen. We want it right now. So they go and they wake up all these workers and send them down to go work 12, 14, 16-hour shifts all seven days a week. Their pay is cheated. The little bit of pay they get, all this kind of stuff. And that's what – and then they, and they're working in a glass factory that the government built for them. So – 
Well, that's, that's what we're paradise. trying to compete with out there in the world. Is we're sit- and then they say we need to be more like China. We need to, you know, we can't. Yeah, right. We, in order to compete with China, we have to change and lower our standards here, instead of doing something about that that horrible situation where the workers and people in China have no say, and so these wealthy and power in, powerful influ- uh, wealthy and powerful interests can then use them like slaves virtual slaves, and then we're supposed to try to compete with slavery. Well, we're, we're, all, we're talking well, about that's the, the Chinese paradise. state as if, it, if it's a monolith, and, and it isn't. Uh, there are very powerful independent companies in China, Greeling being one of them, which is the company that bought Volvo, which operate on their own within, a chi- within the Chinese uh, uh, environment, which gives them subsidies and free loans and stuff like that. There's also the Red Army, which, is, which owns many, many thousands of factories, which operate somewhat independently of the Chinese Central Committee and the Communist Party. And then there's the State Planning Agency, which, op- which operates a little bit independently of the Communist Party, too. This is not a monolith, and, and the more we know what the that, cracks Patrick. are in that system, the better we can deal with it, and the more we know about the people who run that system, the better we can deal with it. We're not we're not yeah, lining up and saying this is wonderful. We're saying we need to know this guy because we're going to have to be dealing with him for the next ten years, and we want to know where the weaknesses are and where the strengths are, so we can focus on the weaknesses. Well, that's fine, but I doubt if anyone's operating independently in China. Oh yeah, and to suggest that is incredibly naive. No, it is. Chuck, um, is I'm a, sorry. I visited China. I work with Chinese organizations. I work with Chinese companies, and it's not naive. You haven't been to China. Think, you don't know any of those people. You don't know any of those companies. It's naive for you to say so. I think you're being fooled, Patrick. You've you've seen Potemkin villages. No, I haven't. With due respect, I, I have been actually. You're, and I, have and been I, in, I don't I have question been the your sincerity. Of the Red but, Army in China too. Oh, that's nice. I don't question your sincerity, Patrick, but I think you're being a naive American, and you're putting American values on something that is it, it, it's almost impossible for Americans to comprehend uh, what kind of a, a progressive system they have there. They don't have a progressive you're system. In, you're in the headquarters of the Red Army, Patrick? Very well, thank you. Well, with due respect, they, they, they put on a show. But you were at the Red Army headquarters? I was. In, in communist China? In Beijing, yes, I was because one of the organizations that, that I had uh, I worked with for uh, in a particular project was housed inside the Red Army headquarters. I actually had lunch in the Red Army's cafeteria with all these people in green uniforms and big hats with uh, with badges on them. Uh, it's a fair. Could you walk around and talk to people on your own? I could if I spoke, been able to speak Chinese, but a lot of them spoke English. I did, yeah. Right, I see. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I, it sounds to me like uh, it reminds me of Jane Fonda's trip to Hanoi. I was no, doing that. that. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's sort of. No. Or, or who was it that went to Beijing? Uh, Shirley MacLaine coming back and singing the praises. I, I need to do respect, Patrick. I, I don't know. The Red Army leases out offices to various organizations, and this particular organization was in one of those offices. You had to go through the walls. You had to go. You, you know, there were guys out there with guns who looked at your ID first. But once you got in. The, the, these were private organizations that were leasing offices. The Red Army is a is a very big land uh, landlord in Beijing, and it leases offices. Oh, isn't that charming? Well, isn't I mean, that just that's charming? reality. Yeah. Sounds, <laughs> as, sounds as American as apple pie. Uh, no, it's Patrick. Chinese. I mean, I, I think you're I think you're well-meaning, but I think you might have been played. No, with due respect. No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I know exactly how powerful they are. Well, Which is something I'm we not have sure. to know. 
We really have to know. Well, yeah, I, I think it's obvious. Why are we? Why do we continue to borrow money from them? Uh, because and why aren't have, we putting up tariffs? Because we on their, on their, on their export and they buy them. Well, you know, see, that of course gets they, into. Incidentally, China That gets is, into an issue, Patrick, that we, we, we could talk about. I mean, it, it goes back to this monetary thing I'm studying. We so shouldn't be uh, bonding debt. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a fool's game, and it's a, it's, a, it's a type of system that we shouldn't have. Well, that, 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 that's a different issue. The, and incidentally, China only owns 8% of our debt, so it's not that, that, that's that big a controller of no, our debt. No, that's enormous. That's uh, very not troubling. Really. No. 8%? 92% that's is owned a very by high Americans. number. Actually, uh, close well, to that's fine, by Americans. Japan owns six percent. So what are we all? So why, don't, why are we all twisted out of shape over it if they if they owe such a small amount of our debt? Why why are we? Uh, why is Hillary Clinton going there as Secretary of State and begging them not to sell their their um, bond issuances? I mean, well, what are we afraid of? The best thing that could happen to us is if they started selling those things because that would lower the value of our currency relative to their currency, which would make us much more competitive in world markets. People oh, are afraid okay. China's going to dump bonds. People. people are afraid China's going to dump bonds. It would get yeah. working men jobs. That's no, what it, it would do. screw working That's people's why we're dollars. So your, your check would be worth what we're China down to a terrible development there. I think uh, we need to. Your, your uh, check would be worth about a quarter of what it's worth now, and it would be a devaluation, which would would hurt people badly. Anyway, Dave, will we uh, Patrick? We'll talk tomorrow. I think we're at the end of the show. Yes, we are. Dave Johnson, thanks okay. for joining us, Patrick. We shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Check out our website, fairnessradio.com. Have a good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, everybody, and you can follow Dave at rfuture.org.